So you actually have to ask yourself, how do these people who live thousands and thousands of kilometers away from the first police station or from the first court, how do they resolve their disputes? The condition is a un esclave, il travaille chez son maître. Il n'est pas rémunéré. Il n'est pas soigné. Il n'est pas habillé. Is this being a girl or a woman? If this is being a girl or a woman, then it's not for me. I'm not this girl they are talking about. I'm not this woman they are talking about. Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project. Here we share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, how we can strengthen it. I'm Joe Haley, ACLS Mellon Public Fellow and Program Manager for the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative. In this podcast mini-series, I'll be sharing research about justice innovations around the world. We'll dive deep with justice champions in some of the most difficult environments for development and the rule of law. How are these local practitioners working to expand access to justice? How are they preventing corruption and building islands of integrity? How are they reforming the criminal justice systems where they live to be more equitable, efficient, and effective? In the following episodes, I'll share my conversations with civil justice reformers in the Sahel an arid region on the southern shore of the African Sahara, which has seen a sharp increase in violence and state fragility over the past decade. Since 2012, when an ill-fitted coup toppled the democratically elected president in Mali, the Sahel has witnessed an uptick in violent extremism, with jihadist groups gaining ground across the region. With support from the Knowledge Management Platform for Security and the Rule of Law, I visited West Africa in March to meet with organizations in Bamako, Abuja, and Dakar who are working to expand access to justice in the face of this difficult situation. The questions that motivated me were simple. Why are poor people turning to jihadist movements in order to resolve their grievances? What role might civil justice play in restoring state legitimacy and quelling the violence? How are governments providing justice services in the absence of peace and stability? How can the international community identify the most effective policies and programs on the ground, and what can be done to support them? Following an open call for nominations, I interviewed local practitioners whose programs were identified by the rule of law community for having a positive impact on civil justice in Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, or Senegal. West African countries where the World Justice Project had already conducted extensive polling to measure the rule of law. What I found in the Sahel were intelligent and committed professionals who are making the best of a crisis. They're using unconventional tools to end hereditary slavery, to defend human rights, resolve local disputes over land and natural resources, and improve the plight of women young people, and minorities. Piece by piece, stone by stone, they are rebuilding a culture of order and security founded on consensus. Together, their efforts represent a powerful response to violence and impunity. Join me now as we turn to my conversation with two organizations, the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative and Tement, who have partnered to end descent-based slavery in Mali. Bonjour. Salut. When I arrived at the ABA Roley offices in Bamako, their team was in the process of shutting down a two-year program funded by the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor which had secured freedom for more than 200 victims of hereditary slavery in Mali. Fears about the coronavirus had already reached Bamako, so we bumped elbows rather than shaking hands. I wanted to understand how these justice practitioners had come to work on access to justice 
so I asked them to share their personal histories. Alain Kisambwe, ABA Roli Country Director for Mali, spoke first. Alain Kisambwe. Alain Kisambwe is from Congo. He's the uh, director of the project here in Mali. Je suis au départ. There is a distance problem in Congo about uh, the people and uh, the justice institutions. So people who are in remote areas have problems to come to the places where uh, the tribunal or the courts are uh, in order to deal with their problems. One of the solutions in Congo were to make sure that uh, the courts move from where they officially are and uh, they go to the people and, uh, and then deal with their specific problems. So my work with this civil society organization, so during this uh, what we call audience forum, gave me the opportunity to see how difficult it is for the citizens to have access to justice. And uh, it, uh, it makes me think also to s decide that I should do something and not only to work as a lawyer in my office, but also to do some other jobs pro bono for the people who need access to justice. Next, we hear from Saifulai Sedu Sedebe, Program Officer for Countering Dissent-Based Slavery at ABA Roli. Uh, his name is Salifulai Sidibe, Seu Sidibe. Je suis le chef du programme Abarbi au Mali. So he's charge of the programme in Mali. Donc c'est moi qui étais chargé de conduire la formation sur le droit. He was in charge of training about international law and also the protection of prisoners. So when the program started, uh, I was in Mopti. Then people did not have a lot of experience. People were arrested just based on the fact that they were talking uh, a language or they are from an ethnic group. And people were sent to prison. They don't know anything about uh, judicial processes. And, uh, a lot of them uh, fortunately could uh, be freed uh, with the help of uh, uh, organizations. So I decided also to work in that field because I can bring my contribution uh, for the justice problems. Next, we turn to Idrissa Aklinini, a Malian human rights advocate who served as the program coordinator for ABA Roli and its local implementing partner, the anti-slavery NGO Association Temet. So I'm from the Faculty of Judicial Sciences in Bamako. In 2008, I just finished my studies. And uh, two years earlier, the association for which I'm working was created in 2006. So afterward, I think TEMET was the best law firm for me. So it was an association that had just been created and that were fighting against discrimination, so inequalities. And I felt that uh, it is where I can feel useful. I'm not from Bamako, I come from uh, the remote area. In the area where he comes from, when there are problems, there are two ways. No, normally, they never solve this problem officially going to justice. Uh, they try to solve the problem between themselves uh, in a friendly manner, or it can be uh, in a, another way, but uh, very friendly. Uh, and, uh, and usually, the problem is not completely solved. But, uh, comes back again. For example, when he finished his studies, two years uh, later, he went uh, to his village on uh, holidays, and there was a conflict between his village in, and another village. And uh, he advised his parents, instead of trying to find another solution that will not be viable, why don't you take the problem to court, to the official justice, so that they will solve it uh, once for all. There was a local organization, NGO, called Farm uh, Development. So he 
came in contact with them and he worked with uh, this organization. Did uh, a lot of service uh, regarding uh, access to justice. And uh, one of the conclusions that I uh, made was that people were not did not have enough information about access to justice, about the processes of access to justice. So I, uh, I found out that uh, justice, access to justice, uh, for problem of justice, are one of the main factors of conflict in these regions, uh, in Segu and Monti. So there is a lot of challenge regarding access to justice uh, in Mali because 80% of the people don't just don't understand all the processes, don't understand the language, don't uh, you know uh, understand uh, what they have to do in order to have uh, access to justice. So that's a lot of problem, and that is one of his main motivation: make sure that people have understanding of that and have access uh, to justice. Le langage juridique n'est pas à la portée de tout le monde. Over the past decade, Saifula told me, as the security situation in northern Mali deteriorated, the government responded with harsh repression, including arbitrary arrests conducted by a corrupt and inexperienced police force. People were arrested based solely upon their language or ethnicity. This made the situation worse because it undermined the government's legitimacy and provoked resentment among ordinary citizens. Ultimately, it had led to civil war. A civil war, if you want, started after he left. At the beginning, it was between the state and terrorist groups. A lot of these terrorists come from uh, communities or come from uh, northern uh, organizations from the north. Because of that, people tended to think that uh, if you come from this ethnic group, you have to be a terrorist. The situation was worse because normally when people have a problem, they go to the state, they go uh, to the justice system for protection. And if you don't receive these protections, uh, then uh, the situation really worse for them. And there is a lot of disappointment there. At the time when you were from an, an ethnic group, no matter what kind of position you have, you are labeled a uh, terrorist. So it, uh, it, it worsened the situation, the crisis. Even now, uh, many people think like that. Uh, a terrorist is a terrorist. He has no parents, he has no family, and uh, he's just acting um, on behalf of himself. So it is not the state, but individuals who did not understand the situation at the time. It was not a decision of the state, nor a decision of uh, local uh, authorities. It was a, a misunderstanding of the situation. The story of the crisis was one in which a lack of access to justice was linked to discrimination against Mali's Black Tuareg community which had been identified with terrorism in the north of the country and denied due process under the law. Yet discrimination can mean different things in different cultural contexts. So I asked Drusa to paint a more concrete portrait of the modern-day slavery which Temet was working to abolish. So when I joined Temet in 2009, there were twenty cases that were ongoing in the north of Mali. There was a lawyer to defend these victims, so I, I attempted to send me to the law firm of this uh, lawyer. We decided to work together to, to help these uh, victims until uh, the events of 2012. Mm, so where uh, there is the occupation of uh, uh, two-thirds of the country. All judges that were in the north of the country uh, came back to, Mara, to Bamako. So it was uh, impossible to follow the cases, to make a follow-up of the cases. And uh, once in Bamako, we have tried to follow the situation with the judges. So we tried to relocate the cases uh, in Bamako. But uh, always they had the answer that they did not have the files. The judges said uh, they don't have the files. They, uh, they have no contact. 
But still, I uh, I remain at MF and uh, I'm responsible of a program that uh, we are dealing with now. So since that time, uh, we do our best to make sure that uh, victims of slavery have access to justice. Uh, we have to know that the slavery is uh, a reality, it's a fact. And we hear a lot of things about that. Contrary to all that, it is real. And the discriminations also are real. And the social inequalities as well. So the yes, social status in uh, Mali depends on... Uh, plays a very important factor. It's a very important factor in what you are in Mali. So we now now preparing general elections in Mali. Some people are candidates. These people are asked, what is your social status? Are you a slave, for example, or not? No matter how intelligent you are and what degree you have. So it was based on these findings that Temet was created in 2006. Since the independence, from the independence to now, you will never see somebody who is Ag, Ag is a Tuareg name, a black Ag occupying official position in Mali. That is the situation that we want to change. We want to people to understand that uh, social status is not important and that slavery is also not uh, acceptable in Mali. And it is slavery is even against uh, what we say in Mali, uh, one people, uh, one uh, fashion and one objective. We cannot be a people, one people, if there are some people who dominate others. How can we have one objective? Some people have only the agenda to dominate others. So how can we have one faith if we have different objectives? In the Americas, slavery began as a loosely racialized social construct. Only later did it acquire the absolute black and white dichotomies that came to define the system of chattel slavery in the Confederate states. I wanted to understand the factors that determine enslavement in Mali. Are they purely racial, or are there other factors at work as well? In fact, in fact, the slavery is practically the same community in Mali. Yes, slavery practically in all communities in Mali. If you take the north of the country, the in in the north uh, it is a color. Uh, problem. If you take the Dogon, in, uh, in Dogon, so there are slaves, there are also masters, and they are all black. In the Fulani also, the girl, there is also slavery in Bambara. Soninke also. The difference with the North is that there are two colors of uh, the skin, but uh, it is a practice that is uh, present in all communities. Uh, Mali, Mauritania and Niger have uh, the same uh, socio-cultural realities. There is slavery also in Niger, but it is much more frequent between uh, white population and black populations. It is very specific only in Mali that uh, uh, there is a slavery between black people. In the north of Mali, there is a minority of Arab also. And some of them are Mauritanians, some are Malians, and sometimes also they are Malians and Mauritanians are the same. And they also have slaves, black slaves. The realities of modern-day slavery can vary widely. I wanted to understand the specific legal and material status that enslaved persons experience in Mali. What I learned was that it differs widely from region to region. In the north, where the influence of a rigid caste system is strongest, the deprivation of freedom can be absolute. In the rest of the country, where the conditions of slavery are closer to domestic servitude, enslaved persons may enjoy some autonomy, and they are often included within village life. They work with the master, he has no salary, he has no health care, and he eats only what remains. In the north. So the master can decide on the slave. He can say, for example, I give my slave to someone else. He can sell his slave to someone else. 
he can also lend the services of the, his slave to someone else. Children of the slave do not belong to the slave. They belong to the master. His children that do not inherit his uh, goods. He, he, he has no rights, so actually uh, he has no official uh, state. He, he, uh, he, he is nothing, he does not exist, he is just a thing. So he has, he's just a property, and uh, a property, and his master has right of property on him. If you take uh, the example of the region of Kai that was uh, recently in the news, their slavery is different. Uh, slaves work for the masters uh, during uh, special uh, events like ceremonies, weddings, uh, and funerals and these kind of things. And also uh, in order to work on the fields. And when they refuse to do that, they are beaten. Global media sources have frequently reported on the prevalence of slavery within radical jihadist movements, such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So I wanted to understand what effect, if any, the 2012 security crisis had had on the conditions of slavery in Mali. Saifullah's answer, somewhat surprising, was that civil conflict had actually improved the plight of some enslaved Malians because it gave them a window of opportunity to flee. You know, the crisis did not increase slavery. It did give uh, the opportunity to some slaves to escape. Uh, usually, uh, before, when you escape as a slave, the, your master did everything to bring you back, but that was no longer the case during the crisis. And during the crisis also, the masters of slaves uh, they are not, don't show themselves. Uh, even when they have slaves, they, they introduce them as uh, family members or, or friends and not as slaves. The institution of slavery in Mali is based upon informal arrangements at the local level. The program implemented by Temet and ABA Roli has leveraged this informality by appealing directly to local leaders, such as village chiefs and Quranic teachers, in order to secure the freedom of enslaved individuals. Ndrisa explained how this approach not only reflects Mali's strong culture of consensus, but how it had also been used to resolve disputes over land or natural resources. In the case of my village, uh, which is at uh, 110 kilometers from Segu, uh, the city of Segu, it is a land issue, uh, land for agriculture. And um, yeah, it, it, it seems that uh, in the region, uh, all the land belonged to a group of families. But uh, there were newcomers, and uh, these people, the families, decided to give part of the land to some other people. And uh, after the years, uh, even though those people who, the newcomers, consider the land other or as their own, that is not what the, uh, the owners think, because they always, they still think that they just given, they have given the land and uh, it's not the property. So that's, that's a, an issue that remains, also, there is also the issue of boundaries between this land because it is not specified exactly uh, where this your property begins, where it ends, so the boundaries are not very cut and clear. And uh, what, what he thinks also is that um, uh, he make a reference to what he said about slavery, uh, it is not exactly slavery, but people who are landowners consider themselves superior to the newcomers. They consider that they are the real owners of the land and uh, the newcomers are just inferior to them. The conflicts are based on uh, land issues, fishery, and also... Le troisième c'était? The the conflict between uh, uh, agriculture and uh, also uh, people who are, mm, are dealing with uh, animals, uh, sedentary. Right. 
there are people, the newcomers, uh, actually, we, they're called newcomers, but there are people who live uh, there uh, for a century. Mm-hmm. These stories are, have been told from generation to generation, but they have been living there for centuries sometimes. Before it was not a problem because there were a lot of resources, but with the lack of resources now, people started to think it is no longer sufficient for the, uh, the people who are from there, and, uh, and they tend to think, okay, they are the real owners above uh, the newcomers. So the main problem is, not, uh, is between agriculturals and the pastoralists. Uh, before there were land especially for agriculture and land especially for pasture, uh, for animals. But now, uh, because there is lack of land for agriculture, uh, people tend to use this uh, land for pasture and the other way around. So it creates a, a lot of uh, conflicts. So that is the main source of conflicts. Uh, the lack of resources. Traditional leaders provide a source of stability in the Sahel, a region where the margin between life and death can be razor thin. Arable land has always been scarce, but as the climate warms, rapid population growth is placing tremendous pressure on local sources of food and natural resources. In Mali, where arable land is shared between agriculturalists who cultivate a fixed plot of land and pastoralists whose herds can number in the thousands, access to land has traditionally been controlled by a complex patchwork of informal land rights. But these have broken down in recent years, as traditional tensions have erupted into an increasingly desperate conflict in the north and central regions of the country. I asked Indris about claims that the state had helped to disrupt this delicate balance by disempowering traditional leaders who had administered access to arable land using formulae that predate French colonization. Not everywhere. It is not the case everywhere. In Yono, for example, it is true because uh, there is a law in Mali that. Uh, there are official traditional uh, authorities that uh, solve uh, these prob- uh, land issues and there is a national commission that deal with uh, land issues and the traditional authorities are member of this uh, commission. So in, uh, in uh, some areas, for example, in his area, the traditional authorities, they still exist they still have the authority and they still uh, are the first people that are called in, in case of conflict. But uh, what he's saying is that they have limited authority now and also they are much more contested now than before. And uh, so, uh, but still when there is a conflict, they, they are called upon and if they cannot solve the problem, they. Uh, call uh, uh, official authorities. There is a, a, a law that is a measure that has been taken that uh, uh, project that uh, gives these traditional authorities much more uh, uh, status in uh, solving uh, the uh, judicial the, the problems land issues. In the north, there were uh, the Kadi uh, who were uh, um, solving these kind of uh, problems based on uh, the role that these uh, traditional authorities have played in the history. The government has decided to give them much more uh, status uh, in dealing with uh, the, the problems. Yeah. Okay, yes, uh, it is true that they are more more and more contested because of the way they uh, yeah, they act they can it can be due to their political affiliation in the in the society and uh, it can be also due to the way they get this uh, authority They're, they are designated as a traditional authority he gives the example of a village where uh, normally there was one family where the chief of the village uh, would come from. 
and that was traditional and that was accepted by everybody. Even if there is uh, everybody, uh, the father uh, dies and there is also a young boy who is in this family who would be considered uh, the chief of the village. But uh, um, they have decided to change that system in the village and it's no longer that family they have decided to give to nominate or uh, to designate someone else as chief of the village and as a result there is an open conflict in the village and uh, talking about chief of the village is not even a possibility uh, in, the, in that uh, there is no chief of the village and uh, you cannot even talk about it uh, so serious is the conflict in the village the only uh, solution that can uh, uh, last uh, long is when the solution comes from the communities themselves. If they see them, discuss and decide, then this can be a solution that can be uh, that can uh, <coughs> last uh, long. Uh, if not, if it comes from the official uh, the authorities, the police, the gendarmerie, or whatever. Uh, there is already a lack of confidence in these authorities and if they implement any kind of solution, that solution will not be lasting. In a country where the state's capacity to govern is limited by distance, lack of infrastructure, and concerns about security, it makes sense to rely upon traditional leaders to resolve conflicts over land or resources. However, I wondered if a fundamental rights issue like descent-based slavery could really be resolved through such informal mechanisms. After all, wouldn't formally recognizing the authority of local leaders be tantamount to empowering the very elite which had been exploiting this free source of labor? Slavery cannot be solved with uh, the state intervention, but it can be solved uh, inside the community. If we take the case of the north of the country, we have um, put in place uh, mediation commissions. They are influent, they have influence, uh, and they are respected in the community. So when they speak, people tend to listen to them. Solving the problem in the community is a very good way to solve uh, the uh, also issues uh, related to slavery. It gives the example of the lady uh, that was uh, who was a slave and uh, who was freed in 2009 near Timbuktu. And what they did is uh, start a mediation with the Marabu. Marabu is a, a, a Muslim uh, leader, a traditional Muslim uh, leader, uh, a Quran teacher. Ah, okay. Mm? Uh, Ustaz. Exactly. Ustaz. Mm. Okay. So uh, he, they uh, talked with the Quran teacher, and they told him uh, because what he says that normally the slave owners they base the power on the slave, they, they, they are based on the Quran or on the religion to justify their, uh, their tradition. So when talking to this Quran uh, uh, teacher, they try to explain to him that it, even in the Quran, it is not justified to have someone as a slave, a person as a slave. And the Quran leader agreed with that. So based on that discussion, the Quran teacher went to talk to the owner of the, of the slave and who decided also, he was also convinced by the Quran teacher, who was convinced and who said, okay, I will, uh, from now on, she's a free person, I even give, him, give her 5,000 uh, CFRs to continue her life and also an animal so that too she can be free. And that is, that is a concrete case of uh, a slave that has been freed based on consultation uh, between in the in the community what she he said is that uh, 
exactly like uh, land issues, uh, these problems cannot be cannot be solved with uh, justice, official justice, because the decision official, the decisions of official justice are usually not accepted by everybody. So if they are not accepted uh, by everybody, there is a problem of implementation or the problem of the other party saying, okay, I don't agree, so I'm going to take all the measures to do justice myself. So it, it gets uh, complicated. So this is uh, it, very reminiscent of what my friends who came to Mali before 2012 mm. told me about Malian culture, right? The okay. thing that everyone praised to me about Malian culture was mm -hmm. that there was a, a, a culture of consensus, a culture of let's work it out, right? let's solve problems ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder then, if, if that is really the case, what happened? What went wrong? <laughs> okay. <laughs> En tout cas, en tout cas, c'est la question que nous nous posons. C'est la même question que nous avons. La jeune génération est asking the same questions because they hear from the older generation. We used to do like this. We used to sit down and talk. We used to sit down and find a solution. But now, what happened? The younger generation is asking. What happens so that we cannot sit down and talk? We cannot decide these things. Mm. This question is there, but still he thinks that there are people who try to do their best, you know, to find a consensus, to sit down and talk and find a solution. One example is that uh, officially there was this uh, national uh, dialogue that has been organized by the authorities so that uh, all the Malians can come and sit down and talk. And decisions have been taken and uh, they hope these decisions can be implemented in order to solve the problems. Alain explained how this process of community mediation works in practice. You know, generally, to find a solution to a problem, Usually, when there were uh, uh, situations gathering uh, in order to solve that problem, there were uh, everybody but the slaves themselves. The victims were not represented. So, and they decided above the head of the victims. And that is not a way to solve the problem. He gives an example of a delegation that has been sent to the region of Kai, because where there was uh, an eruption of uh, this uh, kind of slavery problems. And uh, these people, uh, when they came, they talked to everybody uh, in the community, but they, the victims themselves were excluded from the, uh, the debates. So they have noticed that this is not a way to solve the problem. That's why their recommendation was that Everybody should be included in the dialogue if this dialogue uh, is to have uh, a positive uh, result. Usually, uh, the approach is that uh, the victims are not uh, represented at the table of uh, negotiations, especially in the case of gender-based uh, violence because uh, people tend to think that it can create more problems than it solves when there is a confrontation between the victim and the perpetrator. So that's the, the idea. And uh, in most cases also, even the victims themselves don't want to be face-to-face -face with uh, the perpetrator. Yes. Yeah. So that is... Uh, the, two cases uh, that exist. Uh, normally, the, the approach is that uh, never make them face-to-face -to, -face to, to discuss. It, it is true that uh, they have um, noticed and uh, they have also uh, recommended that the victims in the case of slavery are not excluded from the table, negotiation table. 
but uh, the situation is different in, uh, in the case of gender-based uh, violence uh, because uh, they try uh, not to put the victims and the perpetrators face-to-face -to, -face to discuss in order to avoid problems. But that does not mean that these the victims are not involved in the process of finding a, of finding a solution. What is avoided is a face-to-face -face contact, but they are involved in the process. So, regarding slavery, the victims are not systematically uh, excluded of uh, the whole process. But what they have noticed is that when there is a delegation from Bamako going to these areas and there is, there is a large-scale meetings that the victims are not present at these meetings. That is what they have uh, criticized and they have recommended that that is not, uh, that should be avoided. There are some official forums like, for example, 10th of December, there is uh, Espace d'Interpellation Démocratique, so that is uh, an official uh, mm, forum in Mali where a lot of organizations, a lot of authorities are present. And he says that in these kind of situations, the victims, in the case of slavery, the victims have also their say. They are there, they can explain the situation and uh, in the last session uh, in 2019 they had the opportunity with the help of uh, human rights organizations, they had the opportunity to present the case, to defend themselves and uh, to, to explain that situation. Uh, but in some cases, for example, uh, 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 slavery uh, individually, uh, there is a, a practice that has been uh, also recommended uh, during a training by uh, lawyers, uh, by uh, judges, yes. that uh, in these kind of uh, cases it is better to listen to the different parties separately. Because uh, if you talk to the victim of slavery in front of his master, uh, he might be uncomfortable, he might uh, find it difficult to tell the truth or to tell uh, things uh, specifically. But if you listen to him separately, he can tell you the whole truth. And if there is uh, to be a confrontation between them, uh, together with, uh, uh, with the master, even if he is not comfortable to tell the truth in front of his master, at least you will know that he did not do that because what he said is not the truth. He did not do it just because he is not comfortable saying the truth in front of his master. So that will uh, create the situation to have the truth in both uh, cases. Despite these community-based interventions and the anecdotal success stories of slaves being voluntarily freed by their masters, Mali remains in a security and humanitarian crisis. Thousands of Malians are still mired in hereditary slavery and the country has yet to fully implement a negotiated peace settlement with armed sectarian groups. From the perspective of justice practitioners in the field, I asked, why has peace been so difficult to achieve? Toute cette capacité d'avant de régler nos différents par la médiation. One of the explanations that he gives about uh, the fact that Malians are no longer able to sit down and find a solution in a consensus uh, way to their problems is that uh, before the communities were open to each other, they were living in harmony with uh, each other. But now he has the feeling that that is no longer the case. The communities are closed now. So they, uh, every community is uh, closed and uh, as and behaves as if uh, declaring war to the other community. 
So there is no harmony between the communities. The communities are closed and they are not in harmony with other communities. So there is some kind of permanent conflict uh, between uh, communities and that is uh, one of the sources of the problems that uh, we are living in now. If you look at uh, the Tuareg community, they take the arms and they are, they are uh, close as a community and uh, they fight other communities. If you take the Dogon, they fight other, other communities. And uh, Before, uh, regarding the Tuareg rebellion, for example, in the state, the government of Mali uh, tended to discuss only with the Tuareg and, uh, and not with the rest of the population. And, uh, and he thinks that uh, if it is a matter that is uh, about the whole population, the whole uh, country, it has to be discussed with the whole country and not only with one community. In response to prolonged conflict, Mali's ethnic communities have become insular and self-protective. Yet at the heart of this mistrust, at the heart of their willingness to take up arms over local grievances lies a failure of justice. Communities are resorting to violence not because of ideological differences, but because widespread corruption and inefficiency have left them completely disillusioned about the possibility of resolving their disputes within the official justice system. And this situation is, uh, is also um, uh, a result of the behavior of the state. Because the state is trying to divide uh, in order to rule. The other communities have the feeling uh, that they are marginalized and uh, that they are not uh, listened to. Mm-hmm. They are not involved. So that's why uh, communities tend to take arms now. And what they say, they want to defend themselves, but to defend themselves against whom? One of the reasons is that uh, for some communities, they say, the state tend to listen to you only if you take arms. Like, they listen to the toilets because they, are, uh, they have weapons. So the other communities also tend to take weapons so that they can be taken seriously by the government, by the state. So the justice system also has worsened the situations with the unjust decisions. Malian people have no confidence at all in the judicial system. For the Malians, there is no justice for poor people. And justice is on the side of the richest. If I go to justice, all the rights goes in favor, the decisions go in the favor of the, per- the person who is rich and uh, powerful. The crisis in Mali is um, based in a, a lot of uh, frustrations of people during a long process of time. Right. So the justice system can be a breach only when they give, they deliver fair and just decisions. Because if a justice system gives uh, decisions that are not fair, it can create uh, conflicts. To complete my homonym, you know, the people of the country have been... had the feeling that um, uh, uh, the only the poor people, the uh, the people uh, who are do, doing. Uh, um, the small thieves and uh, that are condemned, but uh, the bigger ones, they they are not uh, they they free to do what uh, what they want. So he, they made a survey about uh, violent extremism, and uh, they asked a question to uh, a traditional religious leader in the in the center of Mali, why uh, there is uh, you know. Uh, extremism, violent extremism uh, now and how come that they can work well together with uh, jihadist uh, groups and the religious leader told them that the reason is that uh, with a jihadist group when they are here there is fair justice. If somebody is found guilty of, of something and you tell somebody has stolen this 
there is justice for everybody. But he said that was not the case when the state was here. There was no justice. There was only justice for the rich and powerful and not for the poor. So that's why there is understanding now between the people and the uh, jihadist groups. Uh, it is also important that um, in order for justice to be a bridge, that they take into account the traditional justice uh, system, traditional authorities, that these also are involved uh, in a way in the new justice system and not only the modern justice system as we know it. During occupation of uh, part of the country in the north, um, the population, people, the citizens, uh, started even to understand, to familiarize with, uh, the, uh, with the jihadist groups because a lot of things had changed in the community uh, in the sense that uh, there were less violence, there were less people who, who, have, who had credit and who, that, who refused to pay back there were less of these kind of problems that exist when the official state of the state is there. So uh, there is uh, the jihadists. They try to implement justice as uh, it, it should be, and uh, the decisions are implemented. But that is not the case with the state. As an example, the case of uh, traditional uh, Muslim uh, religious leader who is now in prison now because he asked all religious leaders of Mali to write a letter to Amadou Kufa and Eyal Bengali and tell them that they are together, that they support their activities. And that was a reason for the government to put him in jail. But uh, this declaration of uh, the um, religious leader is based on one case. The case of a person whose cattle had been stolen by another person. And he went to justice. And they judged the case and this made a decision and decided that the, uh, the thief should pay an amount of money to the cattle leader. And he was given one month to pay back. He didn't. Six months later, when the cattle leader went to the thief, he said, I'm not going to pay you back and you can complain whatever you want. So what did the cattle leader? He went to the people of Amadou Kufa for justice. And Amadou Kufa sent his people to the thief on Friday and gave him a deadline until next Monday to pay back the person. And indeed, on Sunday, the person received the whole amount he was due from the, from the thief. So that is why, at least, that is a concrete example of the efficiency of uh, the justice system of uh, Amadou Kufa, and that is not the case when it is the official justice system that, that can take decisions but has no authority to implement them. Official uh, authorities in the region of Kai, when they go to deal with uh, cases of slavery, they go to talk to them, the, uh, the prefet in Mali, as they are called, or the sous-prefet, they said, Unfortunately, we don't have the authority to solve this problem. So they are incapable to solve the situation. So that's the problem in, the, in Mali now, that the official authorities don't have the trust of the people because they don't have the authority to implement the decisions. Beaucoup déjà l'ont qualifié du coup d'état les plus stupides de l'histoire mondiale. So the coup in 2012 was a, for a lot of people, most stupid coup d'état in the history. And that was uh, 
the situation that's what you said the blessure that has worsened the situation et la maladie c'est la mauvaise gouvernance okay the bad governance is the sickness These practitioners drew a roadmap for how civil justice might contribute to ending conflict in Mali. Durable peace is possible only when people feel confident that they can obtain justice without violence. But in order for the government to regain this confidence, it must end impunity and enforce judicial rulings fairly. Empowering traditional leaders can help achieve both aims because they often have more legitimacy than the state. They are more influential within the local community, and their decisions are perceived to be more fair. So it is easier for them to enforce justice. If the government recognizes their authority and gives them a seat at the negotiating table, then it may be possible to end slavery and address the drivers of civil conflict. The main trouble with this strategy is that traditional leaders have been left exposed their authority contested by a deteriorating security crisis. On one hand, there are armed extremist groups offering to dispense expedient justice. On the other, there are overlapping military interventions, none of which is directly accountable to the Malian people for its actions. What role then can the international community play in helping Mali achieve peace through access to justice? Je parle aussi aux communautés. Mm-hmm. En fait, ce que les communautés pensent, c'est que la France a toutes les capacités mm-hmm. pour pouvoir mettre. As uh, someone who is not from Mali and, uh, and uh, as someone who has talked to communities, so people think that France has the power to solve the problem, but is not using its power in order to solve the problem. And people think also that the government is weak, and as a weak, does not have the possibilities to solve, the capacity to solve the problem. So you have on the one side the state, uh, which does not have the means to solve the problem. On the other side you have France, which has the means to solve the problem and which is not solving the problem. So the people tend to decide for the state that is that does not have the capacity to solve the problem and against France that's, that has the capacity to solve the problem and is not using its capacity to solve the problem. The total of the credibility of France here in Mali is due to one reason that has always been mentioned. Since the independence of Mali in the 60s, uh, the North and especially Kidal has always Uh, wanted independence from Mali, but they have never succeeded in that. But with the occupation of Mali in 2012 and the liberation by France, by the French army, the French army uh, has freed uh, the whole north and came with the Malian uh, army to the regions of uh, Timbuktu, Gao, and all these regions have been freed. But when they came to Kidal, the French decided to stop the Malian army from entering Kidal and they went alone in Kidal. So actually they gave Kidal to the Tuareg movement. So people tend to think that uh, French has officially created the situation of independence of uh, Kidal. That's why they don't trust France anymore. They don't trust it as uh, a party that can solve the problem. In the wake of the French intervention, France was very popular in Mali. And uh, the French president was the most popular person in, uh, in Mali. But until they went to Kidal and they decided that the Malian army should not enter Kidal, it all this disintegrated. This uh, battle, that was one of the main reasons of the coup d'etat of uh, So it's uh, the, main, the same reasons why the population did not trust the older regime 
that is the same reason that the population also is not trusting uh, France, the authority of the French people. What I said is not my opinion, it is what I think is the common opinion of people. My final line of questions had to do with the role of religion in resolving civil conflict and abolishing slavery in Mali. Was there a risk that empowering traditional leaders who are often Islamic magistrates, known as Qadi, or teachers of the Quran, known as Marabu, might actually deepen the crisis by emboldening religious extremists to impose Sharia law? The question revolves around the French concept of laïcité, or secularism, which characterizes mainstream Islamic practice and institutions throughout Francophone West Africa. One of the reasons why the jihadists uh, during the occupation were kind of accepted by the population is that they said we are against division of the country. They did not promote independence of one part of the country. They said we are for uh, the, Malian, the integrity of the Malian territory. What is uh, the Islam, this Islamist movement, what they want is not, does not reflect the opinion of the majority of Muslims in uh, Mali, in the country. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think it is a religious problem in Mali. Mm -hmm. It is uh, probably people who have some kind of uh, frustrations and who have decided to take arms. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as an example, he has uh, never seen a, a purely uh, confrontation purely based on religion. I know villages uh, near Tombuktu that are not religious at all, that are animist, as we call in Mali, so they are anti-Muslim. But in these villages, so they, uh, they have never been a problem against these villages because they are not Muslim. In some villages, it is even forbidden to, to sell Allah in, in urban areas as well. There are churches in the city of Timbuktu that, are, that have never been attacked. Mm -hmm. And there were mosques in Bamako yeah, that have never been attacked as well. Mm -hmm. So he thinks that religion always comes at the second position. The problem is not. In Mali, it is very difficult to say someone and uh, decide what the person is from this religion. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult uh, to, to see people and say, okay, this is uh, someone from this uh, religious group or something. Mm -hmm. You can say the status of someone who says, uh, for example, he's a, a religious leader, he's a, a Catholic leader or something, but not uh, really uh, as a religious group. Mostly he likes to say the issue. So he has two things to say. Eyad Aghali, actually, the jihadist leader, uh, he is someone who was uh, in the Tuareg uh, rebellion before in the uh, 90s and uh, 2000. He used to work also as advisor at the presidency. He used to work also as uh, uh, at the Malian uh, embassy or consulate as a consul of Mali in uh, Arabic uh, countries. So for him it is hard to believe that someone like that who has this background and comes and says, okay, I am fighting for religion. It is very hard for him to believe. He thinks that uh, it is just a way to achieve his goals. He has also traveled to believe that uh, these people, these terrorists who are fighting in the name of religion, are really doing something uh, religious because what they are doing, you know, violating, uh, raping a woman, for example, killing people, that is never acceptable in, uh, right. in, in uh, Islam. Right. He doesn't think the modern problem is a religious problem because there is a religious leader, Diko, who said, uh, who wanted to summon a popular meeting so that people should take arms and go and fight for uh, the liberation uh, of the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
because uh, Malian uh, Islam in Mali is not uh, imposed from outside. It is we believe because we believe, you know, not because somebody wants to make us believe. Right. Voilà, euh, moi je, je, vais, je vais bondir sur sa question parce qu'il a fait, on dirait un peu. So, um, he says this uh, Islam has practiced in Mali and uh, has practiced also by the High Commission of uh, Islam in uh, Mali. They have never fought the laicity of uh, the Malian government. But that is the case of the jihadists who say, who want to impose Sharia in the countries, who wants to fight against this laicity of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, Tuareg are not very religious people, that's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So as a condition to negotiate with the government of Mali, Ayata Gali has said that his condition is that the French troops should leave Mali, the country. Mm -hmm. So he definitely thinks that religion uh, play a positive role in the justice system. He gives the example of the Kadi who deliver justice decisions in the community and usually the decisions are based on the Quran and usually the decisions are accepted by everybody and are also implemented. Okay. <laughs> Rule of Law Talk is a production of the World Justice Project. This episode on access to civil justice in the Sahel has been part of the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative, a storytelling program for sharing effective approaches to strengthening the rule of law worldwide. Rule of Law Solutions is a registered acceleration action for UN Sustainable Development Goal 16.3, which aims to promote the rule of law at the national and international levels and ensure equal access to justice for all. Please tune into our next episode, where I speak with Jean-Gray Maiga, founder of Femme et Droits Humains, about the access to justice challenges facing Malian women and girls. The Rule of Law Solutions Initiative is made possible by the American Council of Learned Societies and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Additional support for access to civil justice in the Sahel has been provided by the Knowledge Management Fund, a program of the Knowledge Management Platform, Security, and the Rule of Law at the Klingendale Institute for International Relations, Netherlands. Special thanks to Association Temet and the Africa Division of the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative for their participation in this recording. Additional sounds provided by Jordan Powell under a Creative Commons non-commercial license. I'm Joe Haley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>